Welcome to Fifth Wall's Fly on the Wall podcast, where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate, technology, and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable, green, and tech-enabled future. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. With Italy several weeks ahead of the U.S. in terms of a COVID-19 recovery timeline, I sat down with Manfredi Catella, the founder and CEO of investment and asset management firm Coima, to hear how the Italian real estate community has reacted to loosening isolation measures and the slow reopening of the economy. Catella offers advice to real estate owners around how to safely and practically manage the return to assets, while sharing his thoughts around technology as infrastructure and how the health crisis has shed light on the necessity of integrating technology into every aspect of his business. Manfredi, thank you so much for joining uh, all the way from Italy. Um, it's, a, it's a pleasure to talk to you. And maybe to start, would you mind just uh, giving people your background? Um, and in particular, just explain Coima um, and, and kind of its presence in Italy. Uh, thank you, Brandon, for the invitation and for sharing uh, views and experience in this uh, um, so challenging circumstances for all of our, all of us uh, around the globe. To give you uh, some uh, uh, basically initial introduction from us, from me and Coima. Uh, basically, Coima is uh, only working on real estate, and we have uh, an exposure both to private and listed real estate. On the private side. Uh, uh, we have a regulated investment management company uh, today running uh, roughly six billion on behalf of uh, uh, global investors uh, from all over the world so Asia America uh, Middle East and Europe and obviously from Italy and if you want the, our DNA is very much uh, being a developer so we've been developing uh, for now over 50 years and we are certainly in a very um, developing time in terms of our current pipeline, uh, which obviously uh, raise for us uh, a very sensitive uh, uh, point of view in terms of how behavior change, and therefore how the product will change, and therefore how each of us uh, has to adapt and evolve in order to match a different environment in terms from the consumer perspective. So that, if you want, is the angle which I think is important to say so that uh, while we have our conversation, we understand a little bit our perspective. So maybe this is a, in a nutshell of uh, the Coima platform, and obviously I'm, um, I'm the founder and uh, CEO of the company. And, and for Coima's assets, it's, <clears throat> it's the largest real estate company in, in Italy, is that right? It's one of the very active and, you know, among the larger. And, and I'm curious just from your perspective, obviously, if, if we were to rewind to kind of um, end of January, um, how did, what was the reaction in the Italian real estate community when news of the coronavirus kind of first started cropping up in the press? What was the initial reaction because in some ways 
it was the first Western country to be impacted. Curious how that felt yeah. for you. Well, um, I think the reaction is the same uh, very much uh, anywhere in the sense that uh, the first reaction is uh, very superficial because you don't know how deep uh, the consequences uh, of uh, the specific event might be. And uh, I would say it's probably natural in a way to underestimate uh, uh, the magnitude uh, of uh, what is then happened. So locking uh, an economy like every country has done is uh, an experience uh, which none of our generation, uh, both yours and mine and the youngest generation, had experience in Western economies. Uh, we didn't have had uh, the experience of war, uh, which is the only other comparable event, despite obviously very different, uh, that provoke uh, an economy gap, you know, like a locking uh, of the economy. So I think it's uh, fair to say that at least we were not prepared uh, to consider this gap, uh, uh, particularly of this magnitude. And uh, on the other side, uh, to go more in the daily life, uh, uh, the locking uh, as implied uh, clearly for all of us uh, isolation and isolation uh, implied uh, the activation of a business continuity plan so while business continuity plan uh, tend to be or have been uh, in the previous years more like uh, protocol written protocol that you have in your uh, um, on your table but truly you never think about uh, having a real interruption, uh, well, we did have the interruption. So the good thing is that uh, in our experience, we have uh, 200 uh, plus professionals in the platform, and we went remotely uh, from one day to the other, fundamentally. And I've been uh, positively surprised and grateful, if you want, to the team, which uh, keep the continuity almost like normal, I would say, from the first very day of, uh, of, uh, of remote uh, working, um, which now is obviously two months. So it's a long time. And uh, we run the companies uh, basically in, uh, in continuity. Having said this, uh, maybe do you want me to stop just if you want to elaborate in, a, in whatever direction uh, you like? Yeah, maybe I'm just curious now, now from your perspective, in many ways, Italy's two to three weeks, you know, ahead of the US, it seems like kind of in this crisis. And so how has the Italian real estate industry and how have Italian tenants reacted to, you know, opening the economy? Um, and, and what is the current thought process around how both to do that practically um, and how to do that safely? Yeah. Well, uh, first, if you if you want the during, uh, in my mind, the time, which obviously is a very is a fundamental variable in assessing anything uh, for the future. In my mind, is really much. You can split in three phases. You know, one is what I would probably define as the off time, and the off time is the locking and locking. 
and truly, you know, if you if we have to pick a number, probably the number is three months, two to three months, uh, this period. And uh, so, so, so right now, you don't think you're through that, meaning we're still in the full closure period. You think in Italy? Well, as of today, we are in Italy. We are in the locking period, so we are in the off time, but we are about coming out of uh, the locking period because despite it's not yet announced by the state, the unlocking date, uh, the unlocking date is expected to be on May 4th. And uh, so Italy is about uh, finishing uh, phase one, meaning the half time, and entering phase two. Phase two for me is uh, what I define as a slow time. It's a slow time because uh, you restart the economy but you restart the economy not obviously back to normal because there will be protocol to um, respect you know, like everywhere in the world so i don't think i have anything to add you know, but social distancing is clearly you now the first uh, and fundamental uh, substantial change and uh, the slow time period uh, none of us uh, will know how long it lasts my personal assumption is that it's not going to last less than 12 months and the reason why i picked this number is because uh, the only way to know uh, for sure the end of this period if there is a vaccine and finding a vaccine and implementing a vaccine and distributing a vaccine will require time the risk of uh, uh, the phase two, in the way I define it, is if you have uh, a go back to relocking. And obviously, as we already saw from other uh, cities and countries, this may well happen, and it's probably the higher risk. So we have a second phase, uh, which is, uh, I call it 12 months. I doubt that it will be shorter uh it might be longer uh hopefully not but i think uh picking a prudent number prudent figure is probably wise and then we have a third phase which is uh let's go back to the normal uh whatever normal will be redefined but as closer as possible to the normal that we had but this is very much depending on uh, uh, some major fundamental questions that, that we have in front of us, and obviously I'm happy to to share with you our our view. So back to your questions, uh, moving from phase one to phase two is a little bit the current priority. And uh, for example, in our cases, uh, we are setting protocol to uh, clearly to go back to the office and to go uh, restart construction site, which is clearly a major um, uh, sensitive protocol because you have many workers going into building buildings. So uh, that's obviously less uh, easy to manage uh, comparing to go back to the office uh, because you, you have simultaneous, obviously, type of construction while you have a construction site. And we are also um, setting a protocol at neighborhood level because of our specific um, 
portfolio that include uh, the neighborhood of Porta Nuova in the center of Milan obviously imply how do you reactivate a part of the city, which obviously has also other implications because you have visitors, you have tenants, uh, all insisting on the same uh, uh, district. So we're very much into this in this moment. And uh, clearly, we're thinking, uh, if you want two sides of the, of the story, one is you want to reopen in a safe way, which obviously is, is clearly the priority. But the other one, I think we also have to think that we're human beings. And after three months of isolation, thinking about going back to a life for another year where everything is about limiting yourself will probably not generate the best energy and optimism that we will have to all need to react. So the point is, how do we turn limit into um, way to make your life easier and also enjoyable. So in writing the protocols and thinking forward, there is also that more psychological way of, uh, of uh, thinking creatively in how the limits can become uh, pleasant. What's the level of collaboration between local governments, the, the national government, and then real estate owners. I'm just curious, like, what does that look like in defining how people actually go back to work, go back to buildings? Is um, well, I don't have the answer because, uh, as I said, uh, the unlocking phase uh, has not yet started. Um, but certainly, uh, I think it will be pretty heavy in a way, you know, because the uh, social distancing uh, uh, let's think uh, now to our daily life now you go out for your house you have to have a mask on your face uh, you have to be careful in staying at least two meters uh, or uh, so now from the others you go back to your you go to your office and maybe uh, someone will test your temperature uh, you cannot go in the elevator with many people so you might go by stairs but you don't want to cross people you want to go to your desk and you want to be dis, uh, the distance with the other. So in many ways, uh, it's going to be kind of heavy, uh, very different from, uh, uh, from the previous experience. So that is the reason why I was thinking, and we are thinking, how can we make this experience as easy and less uh, uh, oppressive as possible? And I don't think the answer is... Uh, smart working because smart working uh, of course facilitate uh, and is important and will stay uh, for sure but at the same time also that is uh, uh, the isolation so i don't think that what is uh, uh, what we have. just quickly what is what is smart working i'm not familiar with kind of how you define that term well simply remote working meaning uh, so working from your house and stay connected so uh, simplistically, you know, just work from distance, not in the office. Right. And do you think, I'm curious from your perspective, you've obviously considered how technology um, at the building level, at the asset level, um, can make for a better tenant experience, kind of pre-COVID, obviously, pre-crisis, pre 
public health considerations. Um, to what extent do you think, and I'm curious, just within Italy in particular, because it was you know, the first country impacted, to what extent does this change the psychology of real estate owners um, to adopt technology that gives them a better understanding of how tenants are engaging with their assets? Um, so kind of smart buildings as, as a, a, a term that's used a lot here in the U.S. Do you think this increases the interest of real estate owners in making their buildings more aware of how users are engaging with them? Well, let me answer first by telling you the way I interpret this crisis, because this is a, probably we can define it as a sanitary crisis uh, because of the virus, but immediately has turned into a profound economic crisis, which has highlighted uh, the weak side of the globalization, uh, which ultimately is a matter of uh, a crisis of the system. And if you think for a moment uh, why has become a crisis of the system, and I'm referring to globalization, is because the weakness that emerged is uh, the same item that probably we would uh, indicate as the strength of uh, globalization, which is connectivity. If you think uh, the result of, connect, of, of being connected uh, with the magnitude of the pandemic crisis make all of us, I believe, thinking about uh, what's going to be the future. I don't think the future will be disconnecting, but imagine that if in this moment, in addition to the pandemic uh, situation, we would have uh, a serious virus crisis of the net, of the digital world, what could happen? So we probably are all of us in love with technology in the sense, maybe love is a big word, uh, but certainly we understand how important is this infrastructure. But this experience probably should make us thinking that if we use technology as if it would, if we, if it would be a very um, safe and uh, strong uh, infrastructure, maybe we would run the same mistake uh, that we, have, we have just, were just experiencing in the physical world. Yeah. Uh, where at the end, we, no, none of us were thinking, oh, by the way, tomorrow morning we can have a virus that become uh, now such a, a major crisis. Maybe some one of us, uh, um, Bill Gates, whatever, raise the, the flag of potential problem of connectivities of this kind, uh, for sure. But none of us really decided to do so what? Let's invest money in healthcare system to create contingent plans. or so none of us have done it. And the crisis uh, that each country is doing, America, China, Europe, each country of Europe, is because we didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. So I think going back to technology, which was your question, I mean, for sure, what is happening uh, will uh, accelerate uh, um, 
the demand for infrastructure, digital infrastructure uh, that can um, it can be used for obviously many functions that uh, will make our life better. But I think we should be careful in uh, not uh, go too much on uh, on that, uh, and most importantly, design it in a way which is truly really strong. And what if uh, fail? So it's about the the risk management of the failure, which needs to be reassessed uh, all over the globe. Um, just not to answer in, a, in an obvious way, meaning, of course, it will be more technology. I think it's a bigger, it's a bigger theme. Actually, it's a really interesting point, which is the, the parallels between <clears throat> globalization and kind of the interconnectivity of, of the workforce and people, right? Like this virus was imported to every country, right? Like th this has been imported and now it's being reimported back into Asia now as the second wave is hitting. Um, and you think about the, the interconnectivity of people physically is obviously far slower than the interconnectivity of us digitally. I mean, you're in, you're in Italy right now and I'm in Utah um, and this feels seamless. And I imagine this does change how both cities and real estate owners and just generally the private sector looks at major technology infrastructure investments. Like for example, 5G, right? Which has been a huge initiative um, in Europe and the US. Um, there are reasons why I think countries and, and companies will want to maintain some level of control, a discreteness to their assets or their geography. And that applies not just to the physical world, right? Borders are closed today. And there's reasons for that from, from a public health consideration. But I can imagine there'd be reasons for that digitally as well, that we actually want to maintain some level of control at a company level. Um, that's a really interesting perspective. Um, and I'm curious right, right now, if, if you were to, obviously we have a lot of US real estate CEOs. If you were to talk to a lot of um, US real estate CEOs, what advice would you give them? Um, obviously being a little further along in this process, the US is obviously reacting quite differently than Italy um, or anywhere and we have the the kind of confounding variable of state versus city versus federal government. But what advice would you give a, a real estate CEO in the U.S. right now? Well, you know, giving advice, I'm not very good in giving advice. You know, <laughs> particularly, I don't feel, to be honest, in a position uh, to give advice to anyone because we have more questions than answer in many ways. But maybe more to share thoughts. I. I think, I mean, in the, in the thinking uh, to what we're living, uh, ultimately, I believe uh, that each of us uh, as uh, CEOs uh, have short-term uh, task and duty and long-term duty. Obviously, the long-term duty are those that are the most important because are the vision, the strategy, and you don't have to be wrong. The short-term duty are normal duty that you have to do anyway. So I don't think that speaking about short-term duty is uh, in this conversation is not 
really helpful for anybody because we all know what we have to do to uh, protect risk from uh, tenants not paying uh, uh, whatever covenants in the financing. I really think that this conversation is pretty like basic and everybody knows what to do. Maybe one only comment, uh, which I believe uh, is worthwhile maybe sharing uh, uh, on the short-term duty is that uh, about tenants paying or not paying, uh, I believe uh, that one of the lessons learned from thinking about uh, a connected world uh, is that the survival of the system uh, is driven by not being selfish, but being uh, uh, together with the others. I mean, the system survive if each of us uh, make his own part to make the system surviving not if we think to ourselves only. And for example, to be practical, when I receive a call from a large tenant willing not to pay the rent, I think that's a big mistake and it's more opportunistic in the attitude. So I think the real estate industry from owners and landlords and so on should really push back. Because one thing is uh, when you have uh, the little pops and moms shop that cannot afford to pay the rent uh, and they call you and say, please help me because I'm an entrepreneur, I cannot afford to pay the rent. And then obviously we have to care. But when you have the big multinational not pretending not to pay, I think that's really poor. And I think all the CEOs have this experience and I think we should... Uh, raise the point a little bit. But other than the short-term duty, look at the vision. I think uh, in many ways my vision, uh, maybe vision is too big word, but my feeling from this experience is that ultimately I don't expect major changes uh, from uh, this experience because uh, the major changes were already set before. So when we talk about climate change and ESG becoming uh, not just uh, be good uh, uh, personally or from a corporate perspective, but really a need uh, to, inter to change the products fundamentally, uh, or digitalizations, or all these trends that were already there, ultimately, I believe, uh, will keep going and eventually accelerate. So on the major be change behavior, I think that will happen. On certain other item, I had more of a question mark. For example, there has been for many, many years, as we all know, the dogmatic statement uh, that bigger is better. So mega city as an urban model is great. Are we really sure? that out of this experience, we will reiterate that bigger is better. Or maybe it's a different system. For example, in Italy, we have, as you know, many cities. Uh, and if you fast connect the cities, you have cities where the quality of life is better, where you can isolate more easily, where you have less pollution and blah, blah, blah. So is it really the mega city model, the winning one? Or maybe there are other models that might be interesting. That's one question mark that I have.
Another question mark that I have is uh, we went through, as we all know, a period in the last few years where the business model where how can I make space use even more intensively than before? Because you have uh, now the sharing, the co-working, the co-living, uh, with uh, a little bit of the excuse of uh, let's stay all together, let's create a community, let's love each other, let's drink beer together. Now, at the end, uh, from a real estate perspective, you are reselling the same square meters multiple times. So it's a heavy uh, use model of use of the surface. Is that going to be uh, the future? And, you know, probably this is a question mark. I, I'm not prepared to say yes or no, but I would probably question what really corporates would like. Now, probably um, all of us will want more safety. So safety, I think, is probably something that will stay for more than the one year that I was uh, guessing, but it will stay for longer. So, you know, safety means uh, a space that is controlled, that is operated highly professionally, that is measurable. So I'm not sure that uh, um, if you don't have these criteria and, and performance in your track record that you can prove uh, that you will be, e that it will be easy to attract tenants or residents or so on. So I'm sure that on those two major points, uh, some changes will happen. Yeah, uh, which will not change direction, but uh, we'll have to rethink some. I, it's funny. I've I've had a lot of conversations with CEOs now, um, all over the world. Um, as and what are the major insights kind of coming out of this? And the consistent theme is exactly the second point you just made, um, which is there was this kind of just there was this very intense drive to densify space. Right, that, that you know, co-working, co-living, you know, short-term rental—all of these were kind of technology-enabled phenomenons that took, you know, commercial space, any space, and said, "Let's use it more intensively. Let's let's put more people in it. Let's drive more economic value by putting people closer together in it." And I understand that is a simplification of what co-working or flex office or co-living means. There are elements of community and collaboration that are also intertwined in that. But I don't think many people ever consider the, the, the health implications of that, that frankly, having such a, a dense system of work massively exposes our workforce, our assets, our buildings, our communities to health risks we had never contemplated. And so one of the things I wonder is, um, I don't think flex office is going to change, meaning I think tenants, major tenants are going to want more flexibility in how they think about real estate. I think that's a given. But what that means in terms of flexibility, I don't think that means working, you know, two feet from the next person. And a lot of the way these workspaces were designed, um, both the kind of we worked of the world where people are packed very densely into spaces, but also even how companies design creative spaces with kind of open work plans and, you know, kind of shared desks. I, I don't, I think that the drive to 
move working in that direction was somewhat misguided. And I think this is a real check and a, a moment of reconsideration. And I, I say that almost from the perspective of a small business owner myself. Um, we had a very healthy, very normal debate in my company over whether we wanted to have enclosed offices or open floor plans. And I'm a millennial. I'm kind of right in the sweet spot of where the kind of uh, consumer and demand changes are happening for space. And I can say unequivocally that how I would design an office for my employees today would be very different than four months ago um, in what I would want. And I think what that means is not necessarily more or less space, but it means more just distance between people and more private space. Um, and I think that's a it's, a, it's a really interesting phenomenon and I'm not to get too philosophical here, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on, on this particular point I've been thinking about, which is so much of what enabled the technology, um, the, the growth in the technology sector over the last decade has been the sharing of things, right? That we share assets. You can drive an Uber, which is a shared Uber. It's a shared asset. Airbnb is built on the sharing economy. We are all sharing service. We are sharing assets. We don't own things as much. And so the ownership of homes, cars, just any asset for millennials was on the decline. Um, and one of the things I think this crisis and this moment of um, isolation and shelter in place that we're in right now highlights is that owning things privately does have value in times like this. Um, right now, you don't want to be getting into an Uber. You want to be getting into your own car. Right now, you don't want to be going to a shared office space. You want to go to your own office. Right now, you don't necessarily want to be um, renting someone else's house with shared rooms and apartments like co-living. Um, you want to have your own place. Do you think that is a, a macro psychological shift or do you think that's just a moment in time questioning of a, of a larger trend? Well, I think, Brendan, you make a clever comment. Um, again, I don't have the question, but I, I, have this, I don't have the answer, but I have the same questions. Because as you rightly said, will you be comfortable or me comfortable in uh, going in this moment, specific moment, you go out and you go in a hooker or you go and work in a place where there have been many other people on that desk and you don't know if they've been cleaned in the proper way. Are you putting yourself at risk? Probably if you would make these questions at this specific time to many people, the answer would be no. So the no will be there to stay or not. Mm -hmm. That's obviously the key question. But certainly, I think uh, in one, I mean, the millennials, I mean, I, well, I'm not a millennials, clearly, but I didn't even on the other side have the uh, experience of the war. But I remember when I was a kid, I had my grandmommy and uh, that went through the war. So in my childhood, I receive, uh, you know, when you are a kid, you absorb, you know, maybe you don't, um, you don't know that you're absorbing, but you do. So you absorb experience for someone that is close to you, that speaks to you about scarcity. And therefore, scarcity make other things becoming very more, more important. 
but all the generation that has been disconnected from this experience, even indirectly, which are, if you say, the millennials, in a way, came up with a model that was a model of demand and behavior that was very much shaped upon their experience, like all of us. Mm -hmm. And it has been experience of uh, everything is going to be fine because the last decades uh, in the Western economies have been, you know, generally speaking, pretty, pretty good. So you tend to grow up uh, without thinking that things can go very bad. So how the, gen the new generation will react to this experience uh, and maybe go back to, you know, maybe more ownership or a different model will certainly have some uh, implication. I'm, I'm sure that something will change, which obviously will have an implication on, on uh, real estate uh, uh, price as well, you know, for obvious reasons. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, like one of the, just the macro phenomenons that, you know, people are talking about is that you made this point at the very beginning um, around globalization and, you know, a global supply chain. And I think we're, up until this moment, I think many people thought of this increased inter economic interconnectivity of the global supply chain as being a net positive. But the global supply chain was, um, deeply connected to kind of just-in-time production, right? Like nobody wanted to hold any assets. You don't want to hold any inventory of anything. Um, and I think we've seen how dangerous this is in almost a, a really scary, a really grotesque way in knowing that, you know, the, the masks and the gowns that, you know, medical professionals are using in the United States are manufactured in China and we don't hold many, a lot of inventory of them. Yeah, isn't um, it incredible? It was, it was, I think, a, a shocking realization that, that the supply chain was so interconnected and was so finely calibrated that a slight disruption could, could, could completely throw it off. And I think there's lessons to be learned from that. But I, I also think there's sociological lessons that millennials are learning right now, which is millennials have very much been brought up in that same mindset. You don't want to have inventory of anything individually. You don't want to have inventory of a house. You don't want to have inventory of a car. You don't have inventory of things that I know this sounds silly, like toilet paper. Um, you want to basically just order it on Amazon and have it get there the next day, right? So you never, it's, it's a capital efficiency at the macro and micro level that, that, that's interesting to look at. And in seeing the reaction to this crisis, um, I think what it emphasizes is that we don't want things so finely calibrated that there's no margin of error, right? So that... I think, yeah, I think it's a very good point. The just-in-time just yeah. uh, model, every model has pros and cons. Now, the, I think the model that we're living in for many, many, many years uh, have not shown any cons, any true cons. Mm -hmm. And what you're just saying, and I, it's right, but it's, a, it's kind of scarcity and abundance. Yep. If you have abundance, you don't want to have, uh, you know, two pair of ski of skis or uh, whatever, because uh, somehow you will get it. No, and these are not primary goods. But when you come to primary goods like the masks, and yep. you realize that you don't find the masks, like in Italy, 
no? in many situations, you don't find the masks. Yeah. No? And the production is below the demand. Well, to me, the big, big thing that the world is experiencing, the world I'm referring to, the Western world, so obviously uh, not those that have suffered in the past, but the majority of the Western people are experiencing back scarcity. Yeah. And scarcity is a big thing because it has implication in behavior and as you were saying. Uh, when I went to go, when I went to the grocery, now the, my first, uh, I have six kids, so you can imagine what does it mean. <laughs> but I went to make uh, the, I want to buy food and for six, well, eight people, plus my wife and me, for many days. So I want to do exactly the opposite of scarcity. I want to create a contingent plan. Right. So I think this is, this is a conversation we're having and is applied to everything. Yeah, and I think it completely applies to everything and I think it has really unique implications on real estate because, well, you know, you can make, a, you can make a N95 mask um, anywhere in the world, right? They can be made in Italy and kept for Italy. They can be made in the U.S. and kept in the U.S. or they can be made in China and there can be a global supply chain. But the interesting thing about real estate is you can't make more buildings in Milan or you can't make that many more buildings. So there's a, there's a finite supply of buildings. And so one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is, you know, the production of, of goods, right? We're seeing the, the limits of globalization and kind of extreme interdependence. But real estate is this unique asset because you can't move a building. Um, they're not making more oceanfront property in the US. They're not making more land. They're not doing the same in Italy as well. And so as you think about companies and people reconsidering what asset ownership means to them, um, real estate is so unique because there's a fixed supply of it to some extent. Um, and I think that the, 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 the demand trends will shift um, because I think the imperative to own a home or to own an asset is just higher because you realize like there is value in, in having things, um, having things that you truly control, right? That you're not dependent on a supply chain um, and that are not, that are not replaceable or where you're not exposed to supply chain risk on. So, and I know we got very philosophical with this, but. Um, no, but it's, uh, it's, I think it's a very good, it's, it's a very nice conversation. And actually it's, it's not really philosophical at the end uh, because it's, a, it's the consequence of an experience. It's a real yeah. experience. I mean, it's a scarcity experience and you, each of us will ask yourself, wow, so each of us experienced something that you don't want to experience. Yeah. So you will ask yourself, how can I evolve in the future to be in the same position? Yeah. It, it's, it, I think one of the things that, you know, we're trying to think a lot about is coming out of any, you know, crisis, there are, there are massive behavioral changes, right? Just in how consumers and how companies look at demand for any asset. Um, and we have this additional variable of technology was already accelerating that um, in in ways that we had never seen before pre-crisis. And you have the convergence of these two things. Um, and real estate is, the, is probably the most idios, idiosyncratic industry because of what I just mentioned. It's, it's limited in supply, right? That there's only so much real estate in Milan. I can't make a building in Milan here in the US. It has to be there. Um, and so there's 
just really interesting um, thought exercises around what what the technology trends that we took as like these given inevitabilities, uh, like short-term rental and co-living and co-working, whether they hold up to the test of time in, in a post-COVID world. And it's not that they, they, they disappear. It's just think I think they change a lot. Um, so anyway, well, I, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me um, all the way from Italy. So. I appreciate it too. It was a good conversation. And also you gave me a few uh, interesting angles. I think the just-in-time model and you know, economy as a service rather with, uh, should we go back to owner, to owning uh, or what? Uh, I think yeah. that's an interesting question. Well, let me uh, thank you so much for, for joining and um, I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly on the Wall. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.